Welcome to Nutritank's podcast. When you tune in, you're going to listen to a fantastic array of speakers speaking about things in the following fields such as food, farming, nutrition, lifestyle medicine and other areas of health. We can't wait to have you with us on this journey. Millions, coddled entitled narcissistic, work-shy, bloody lazy. We want to redeem millennials and give ourselves a good reputation. We have poured endless passions and hard work into Nutritank and this podcast. We hope you learn and enjoy. If you enjoyed today's episode on the podcast, then please subscribe to the rest of the podcast. Share it with your friends, family and colleagues. Give the podcast a five-star rating and leave a kind review. It will really help with Nutritank's mission to be the leading hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine. Hello everyone, I'm your host Ali Jaffe and welcome to today's episode on Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast. I have legitimately been counting down the days to do this podcast as I get to interview the team from my absolute favourite brand when it comes to food and drink, Puka. My friends and family all over the world are crazy for Puka and I've given many gifts of Puka tea over the years. What is Puka? Puka is a major international force and an award-winning herbal company, creating teas, supplements and other herbal medicines. They are on an ethical mission to promote a message on sustainability and well-being. We've been lucky enough to have Puka's co-founder sponsor Dr Elizabeth Thompson's food and mood course at Bristol University, which Nutritank are very involved in. We even had Puka sponsor our first national conference at the Royal Society of Medicine, providing lots of delicious herbal teas. If you haven't guessed it, we love Puka. This will be a two-part series, as of course we can't get enough of Puka, and we want to do their work justice by giving the team ample time to chat to our audience. So, let's chat about some of the team members at Puka. On this first episode, we have Simon Mills. Simon Mills is the herbal strategist at Puka and has been involved in herbal medicine since 1977. He is a Cambridge Medical Sciences graduate and has been at the forefront of modern development of integrative and herbal medicine. In 1987, he co-founded the world's first university centre for complementary health in Exeter and has published extensively in peer-reviewed scientific journals and award-winning textbooks. He wrote the Elsevier textbook, The Essential Guide to Herbal Safety and the book, The Essential Book of Herbal Medicine. Recently, he has pioneered exciting approaches towards community health and social prescription and is the self-care lead at the College of Medicine, for which I'm the National Student Nutrition Lead of. He is an acclaimed international speaker on a range of topics, including herbal medicine and its evidence basis, natural self-care, comparative traditional medicine and social prescription. We are honoured to have him on the pod today. Now, on to another team member from Puka, Ewan McLennan. So Ewan is the Herbal and Sustainability Director at Puka and also works in clinical practice as a herbal practitioner in an NHS GP in central London, offering integrative medical services, something which is very unique in general practice. Having spent many years involved in medical education, teaching medical undergraduates pathology and clinical medicine, 
Ewan is currently undertaking a clinical doctorate in gastrointestinal medicine at the University of Bath. Amongst extensive publications, he has been the editor for an Ethervia medical journal, the Journal of Herbal Medicine. At Pucca, Ewan is involved in many aspects, including research, education and development within the herbal team. He is passionate about the future of herbal medicine and social prescription. Myself and my co-founder Ian were lucky enough to chat alongside him at Dr Hazel Wallace, also known as the Food Medics, last London Nutrition Conference, on a panel. So, let's welcome them both. Okay, so welcome Simon and Ewan. It's an absolute pleasure to have you both on the podcast, on our very first series. And so I just wanted to start off by getting you to introduce yourselves to our audience. Who wants to go first? Well, I'm about to my senior, Ewan. He's, he's... <laughs> no. You go, Simon. Go, go. Uh, a herbal practitioner. I've been doing so for a long time. I, I started in the 1970s after having studied at Cambridge Medical Sciences and going around the block a few times, uh, around the world literally, and then settling into this combination of medicine and plants and have been practicing in Exeter uh, ever since. Uh, doing a few other things besides, uh, so getting involved in the whole development of what we now call complementary medicine, getting the educational standards and professional standards shaped up, uh, working with some wonderful teams, uh, and then getting involved in setting up a university centre at Exeter in the mid-80s, uh, the first time a complementary health centre had been set up at a university level. So that was very innovative and exciting. There was lots of exciting things happening. Um, and then uh, downhill all the way from there, really. Um, it's been a gradual of, um, settling into a nice rhythm. Um, and it was interrupted only in the last three years by um, suddenly being given a job at Pucker. Um, so uh, I work at Pucker at, uh, in an indeterminate way. Uh, I'm called a herbal strategist, but I think that's simply because they can't think of anything else to call me. Uh, I have a, it's, it's just a reawakening. It's a lovely team there. Ewan is in charge of the herbal team. He'll talk about himself in a moment. Uh, and uh, we have, we're really, you know, it's an exciting place. We're, we're opening up to a whole much greater population of people than we ever did when I was a herbal mm -hmm. practitioner. And um, yeah, we're, we, we really are taking the healthcare agenda by its horns, bringing in the organic and everything else. I'll let Ewan describe Pucker better than me. True trailblazers, I like it. And Ewan? So I'm Ewan McLennan. I'm the Herbal and Sustainability Director at Pucker Herbs. I've worked there for about, I think, four years now. So it's creeping up on me. Um, it was not anywhere I expected to be in my life. So I started off as a lawyer. Um, and I worked in the city as a litigation lawyer um, and thought, not quite what I want to do the rest of my life. So I retrained and went to study herbal medicine. I did an undergraduate degree in that. And then when I came out the other side, I took up lecturing. So I was teaching clinical medicine, pathology, differential diagnosis, uh, clinical examination, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I was doing that for about five years all around different universities in London. Um, and loved it, actually. It was a new calling for me, something I never thought I'd do, but a new calling. Um, and then I was given a call out of the blue uh, by Pucker Herbs, who were just looking for somebody to help re set up the 
center of herbal expertise at, at the company. Um, and initially I thought, mm, not sure if this is this is where my life is going, but I chatted with them over the course of a few months and fell in love with the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and as Simon says, it's, a, it's an amazing place to work because it's not only interested in making beautiful things that taste lovely, smell great and do good for the body, but it's also all about looking after the plants and looking after the people who work there. And it's about community and it's about sharing a little bit of love in the world as well, which is a thing I suppose we all could do with at the moment. Absolutely. I know. Very tricky time at the moment. And um, I agree. I've definitely been seeking comfort from my own cup of tea collection. And <laughs> I know it's very, very comforting. Um, so Ewan will ask first and then on to Simon. Did you have any sort of personal connection with plants and herbs before you took up uh, the position of actually studying around it from coming at it from a lawyer previously? How did you actually fall into herbal medicine? Um, there was a little bit of love of plants in my background, a little bit of folklore in my background as well. So my mother's Irish, my father's Scottish, and I grew up going backwards and forwards between the Celtic parts of the world. And I always spent a lot of time in gardens, but I don't think that's what really landed me in herbal medicine. It was whilst I was studying law at university, um, a lot of the friends with whom I was close were medics. Mm -hmm. And I used to go along to quite a lot of the lectures. And when I took up work as a lawyer in the city and I was going, hmm, not sure, um, I thought, you know, I could study anything in the world at the moment. And I bought a booklet which is called hot courses and they have hundreds and hundreds of different courses everything from adult learning to undergraduate degrees etc and I ran my finger down I was just thinking and I saw herbal medicine and it was around the corner from where I was working and I thought interesting let me go and have a look at it and I had always thought about you know would I go into medicine at some stage and I thought well that's a nice way of just doing something gentle it was just on a Tuesday evening and I did it for two months and when I popped out the other side of it I thought actually this is something I could do with the rest of my life I just see such a promise in improving people's health and well-being and doing that in a way that also looks after our planet is I think is a really special thing to be able to do so that's how by absolute happenstance I ended up where I am so pure accident. Pure accident. <laughs> Very unusual way to pivot into it. And so on to Simon. You studied medical sciences at Cambridge, which I'm sure grounded your knowledge into the pathology of different medical systems in the human body. So two questions. Was herbal medicine ever touched upon in such a traditional course? And like you, in, um, you've pivoted into the world of herbal medicine. How did this come about? I think if you ask any herbal practitioner their life story, it turns out to be very complex. Uh, there isn't an obvious you know, mm-hmm. uh, career path from kindergarten onwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was in New Zealand, I went to school, and I was, we lived on a fruit farm, so I had uh, plants in my background. Then I went up to Cambridge, and it was, I only did it because I was otherwise going to do zoology. And I suddenly saw they had a medical sciences degree, which mm. didn't didn't necessarily lead to being a doctor. So I much prefer to study humans than than um, you know frogs and things. So that was that was the that was the incentive there. And then I, I really fell in love with physiology and how things work. And uh, then anthropology, which was one of the options at Cambridge. So uh, it was really a study of human human condition, really. 
And then I didn't. I thought I might go into research, but didn't get quite the right placement for a degree. I was within a scintilla of going studying mountain gorillas in Rwanda. <laughs> almost got, almost yeah. got it, but there was some last hitch. And otherwise, I would have been, you know, a, a mountain man or a gorilla man or something. Uh, but anyway, that's how life takes you. And so I went travelling uh, to find oneself, as one did in those days and uh, ended up watching and be attending uh, some indigenous uh, traditional medicine in North Africa and also in Central America. And uh, suddenly the penny dropped and I realized I both had an interest in uh, health sciences, but also in plants. And so I resolved to try combine the two. And so what kind of things did you observe when you were on your travels that were so different from traditional Western medicine? Uh, there was some healing going on, um, and there was some, you know, it, it was it was a context where there was uh, a, a fever, uh, and it was just someone I was staying with just said, you know, there's this person here, it was a younger person who was ill, and she was being treated by a local woman, and uh, it was the sort of place where being a man wasn't such an intrusion into that world, so I just was able to sit back and... and, and and gas, and I realised later the plants you were using were, were actually very uh, plausible remedies. Um, and then in Central America, it was a much more remote mountain area where there was a big market centre where people used to come from all around. And it was a more of a public thing where there was somebody setting up as a stall and uh, treating people as a sort of GP. And people would just line up and get treatments and he had potions and things uh, and he was just giving people uh, medicines of various sorts. I got intrigued by all that. Wow, that sounds remarkable and so different to, I guess, how we operate. Um, in well, this so different from Cambridge because, I mean, you asked about Cambridge, I mean, you must be joking, um, you know. The, the, the idea of herbal. I know. Been, it's uh, such there was a only about five course. people in the UK interested mm. in herbals in those days, so it was a, it was unbelievably a remote prospect. Uh, but it, Cambridge was the place for physiology. There's no doubt about it. I yes. mean, yeah, it of course, and it still is. I mean, it's one of the most traditional um, medical science—not just medical sciences, but medical courses to do. And you know, you hardly see patients until your third year because you're, you do such a rigorous. Biomedicine. So. Well, I hated pathology. You, are, you yeah. mentioned pathology. I hated it. Um, <laughs> anatomy was always something that really did. I mean, you did all those dissections and things, but it. it you know, I still struggle to remember any of that. But uh, physiology is like a duck to water. It was just lovely. Sure. Just, and that was actually what inspired herbal mm. medicine, as I come to, came to know, because I saw it as applied physiology. It wasn't applied pathology. Mm, that's really fascinating. So you kind of had that systemic thinker's mind, and so you were looking at all the processes within physiology, and then instead of looking at the kind of pharmaceutical intervention to heal problems, you went down the herbal medicine route. So tell our listeners then, you know, we started at the beginning of your trajectory. How did then? How did you then go on to be inspired to write the books, The Essential Guide to Herbal Safety and The Essential Book of Herbal Medicine? How did you acquire so much knowledge to be able to write those books? You, you don't acquire the knowledge, you make it up as you go along. <laughs> Bit of experimental learning. <laughs> I was always making things up. Well, a lot of it came out of courses, you know, that mm -hmm. I, 
I found myself doing because having done medical sciences, I got pushed a bit to the front of the herbal community and got told to teach people physiology and that sort mm. of stuff. So I started writing course notes. And then there was a very exciting time during the 80s when I was in New York, commuting to New York. And there was a, um, a traditional med a Chinese medicine college there, which was looking for some herbal input. And that was during a very you know, it was the AIDS time, so we were really writing the first AIDS um, mm. uh, in, uh, uh, phenomenon where many of the people who came into the clinic were AIDS sufferers, and it was really testing everything we'd ever learned. But out of that came the first book, which was the essential um, book of herbal medicine. That, that was basically course notes for New York. Uh, and then things sort of grew. I was basically one step ahead of the students each time, you know. And, writing notes and turning them into a book it was the usual make it up as you go along no <laughs> and then once you'd written that first book did you feel you had the confidence from having you know great feedback from fellow students and others to then go on to write um the second book no more seriously then because mm. we came out of the university experience we realized that there was a a, a gap between what we had read as students and as mm. early practitioners and what the healthcare professionals of today were expecting, which was to join up the tradition with uh, the, the modern expectations of healthcare. And uh, at that time, there wasn't much in that gap. And one of my f early students was a man called Kerry Bone, um, who uh, went back to Australia and set up a, a major production of high-quality pharmaceutical-grade herbal right. uh, tinctures and extracts um, and he and I got talking uh, and we he, he, he's extraordinary in terms of his capacity to absorb as uh, as you would say a brief you know he's, he's got a head full of stuff and uh, so the thought that he and I could work together on something substantial really took off and that's when we did the safety book and then the, the principles of practice phytotherapy came out of that. So you did it with, so he was Australian or practising in Australia? Yeah, we met in Bali. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> you really do Bali, travel. Yeah. No, I, he said, pick somewhere halfway, and I said, Bali. He said, that's not halfway. It's a delightful but, place to pick. <laughs> <laughs> Love it there. So in terms of writing this book, what kind of healthcare audience was this aimed at? Because he obviously was practising in Australia. You, did, you were teaching and learnt your course in America. How did it then all become translatable to the UK's NHS healthcare system? How well, uh, we, we, we were both, he's a chemist, mm -hmm. so we were both speaking the Western language. Sure. So wanted to make it acceptable to the average healthcare professional, like the average medical or the medical student. So it's written very much with that culture in mind. So it's, it's you know, it, it presses all those sort of buttons. Uh, but it does bring in the tradition, it brings in the work, you know, the thing that, that turns you in an eye on, you know, which is that this is thousands of years, millions of human mm. experiences all wrapped up into something that's fairly coherent. And the real excitement about herbal medicine that I've found is that whether you're in China or in Africa or in Central America or whatever, uh, there are fundamental principles about the human relationship to plants that keep emerging and they come out as principles of treatment. And you know, they come out of old ideas of hot and cold and dry and damp and so on. That was the language people used. But we can now translate them into physiological and path pathophysiological mm -hmm. um, 
metaphors and, and, and conditions. And they really, the, the thing about them, I think you and will agree with this, is that the one thing that really distinguishes the herbal practice from uh, the sort of the, the formulary-led practice that so many health professionals have to follow is that we, uh, literally, I start with a blank sheet of paper when I'm with a person. And we fill that together and we come up with a totally individual path, uh, drawing from the different remedies uh, to come up with something that, frankly, that person will always have as unique, you know, that it's just like their face, you know. So it really is practicing personalized medicine. So herbal practitioners have been doing that for years and are ahead of the game in that sense. They do it in, in, there's a lot of formulas and recipes. Mm -hmm in, in uh, Asia particularly. Um, so, yeah, there's always a mix, but the principle, even in, 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 in traditional Chinese medicine, they have, have formulas, but they, they f refine them to individual states, yeah. Sure. And so you've obviously brought it into more traditional medical Western systems. Is there anywhere in the world, in terms of Western countries, where you think are really ahead of the game in terms of marrying conventional medicine and herbal medicine together? Oh, we're behind the game. Mm -hmm. I mean, oh, that's what I assumed. <laughs> so who's exemplary uh, in the world? Uh, there's, there's, there's something that we sort of bounced into a few years ago, a lot mm -hmm. of years ago. There's about five countries in the world where uh, herbal medicine is not part of the mainstream popular family traditions. Uh, and we're one of them. Um, North America, Canada and, and USA are two others. Mm. Then you've got Australia and New Zealand. And you can just draw your own conclusions about what unites those five countries. But you step across to France and to Germany and, mm. you know, you're, you're, you know the, the pharmacies are full of herbs. Uh, you have to study phytomedicine to get your license in, in both France and Germany um, and certainly going further east. Yeah. It's, it's part of everyday practice and life. So we are behind in terms of that integration. We've got some catching up to do. Absolutely, and hopefully we'll get there. <laughs> so now on to you, Ian. Uh, we've done a lot of research into you, and it appears that you've studied an absolute fortune, having started off life as a lawyer, and um, you know now you're doing your doctorate in health and medicine at Bath. So, um, could you tell our listeners a little bit about um, your studies and um, your training programs you've done thus far to get to be a healthcare, um, to be a medical herbalist practitioner? And how do you actually train to become? What is the training pathway of this? So. It's an, it's an eternally moving platform, really, to work out what you have to train in to become a herbalist. Because unlike doctors or nurses or lawyers, um, there's no protection of title for us. Mm -hmm. So anyone can call themselves a herbalist. They just need to go and do a day or two's course and learn about what peppermint does. And then, you know, you can go and see people. So it's, it's fairly unregulated, unfortunately, mm -hmm. which... Um, means it's the training programs that are set down so you would have professional bodies like the GMC or something who'd be saying okay this is a training program that would be accredited for you to have professional status as a doctor um, we don't have that so we do have voluntary professional bodies like the National Institute of Medical Herbalists, mm -hmm. uh, CPP which is the College, college for Practitioners of Phytotherapy um, 
and they set out the rigour that needs to go into a training programme for a, for a herbalist to have a qualification that would allow you to affiliate yourself with a professional body. And actually, it's not that much different from the course you'd study as a, as a doctor. Um, it's about four years, and you cover everything from the anatomy, physiology, embryology, clinical diagnosis, um, through to uh, learning about your clinical skills at the end of the day and how you do a neurological examination or a cardiovascular or a digestive system, you know, in exactly the same way as you guys do. But what is different is really the clinical exposure that you get working in orthodox medicine because you are working doing experience with patients from an early stage and you have a high volume of them. That's something that we miss a little bit. But still, the skills that are there as a, as a base are very, very good. Um, and I love doing my study. Um, and so I studied for four to five years to get my undergraduate degree in herbal medicine. Um, and then after that, uh, I went on to teach, as I mentioned before. And it was through doing my teaching, I thought, you know, I want to add to this um, and I want to get a, a specialism, I suppose, in the same way as you guys would. Mm. And my specialism to be in gastrointestinal medicine. So I started studying at Bath University um, and doing a clinical doctorate in gastrointestinal medicine, essentially. And I'm loving it. It's difficult to fit alongside the rest of my life. I have to <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but it's good. It's all good. <laughs> wow. So it's completely, it's, you know, a doctorate in gastrointestinal medicine, purely kind of, you know, healthcare related and doesn't touch upon medical herbalism, but is it your kind of aspiration to get this foundation knowledge to then marry it with your herbalism knowledge? So this is affiliated to herbal medicine oh, because right. because it's a clinical doctorate, I can marry it to whatever type of clinical practice I want to marry it to. And because I work within an NHS practice, mm. um, I can, uh, I suppose, attach it to whatever kind of intervention I want to. So if I decide my my clinics are going to focus more on gastrointestinal medicine, I'm doing case histories from those, I'm using the application for my doctorate into my clinical practice. That's what's making the basis of what, what I get at the end of the day. That's so fluid and flexible. I had no idea that you could kind of even do that in the UK. It's yeah, such a brilliant opportunity. Um, so, yeah, sorry, what are you going to say? No, I was just going to say that it, it is great. There are some little avenues where, yeah. you know, if you're an inquisitive mind as a herbalist or as a doctor or as, you know, a lawyer, whatever you want to be, um, there are lots of tiny little areas where you can find out this wealth of knowledge about things, but you do have to dig for them. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this was something that took me a couple of years to find and then a year or so to talk through with the uh, Department of Health there to see how I could shape something that would both add to my practice but at the end of the day add to the body of evidence we have as, as herbal or healthcare practitioners. Absolutely, and in a way that what you're doing is very unique and trailblazing the opportunity for other people in your position or who are other kind of complementary practitioners to do the same. Um, so yeah, really brilliant to hear about that. Where did you study your, your undergraduate in medical herbalism? I did that at UEL in okay. London, um, but 
that course is gone now. I think there is probably one university course left in the UK where you can study herbal medicine because they have just they all opened over the last say ten or fifteen years, mm. um, and a lot of them were based on the um, medical degree that they bought from one of the universities at some stage ten years ago or whatever, um, and then they have closed in succession because there's a lot of pressure. Um, on herbal medicine um, and I understand why there are some difficulties with it because uh, we talked about before the levels of training and the disparity in that across different things sure. no protection title so it's difficult for people to have faith in referring through to a clinician that they mm. don't really understand um, but it is sad that a lot of those courses are closing down because mm. I think we're at a time in the world where we really need to open up choice and options for patients in healthcare and healthcare needs to look beyond it being a very reductionist model which I operating quite often myself in the general practice but a very reduction model where you're saying patient with pathology pathology is x therefore you get medicine y and you come back to see me in you know z amount of time and you're treated the same as that no matter who you are um really you know and quite often it's a sad model that people walk through a door and they have rheumatoid arthritis and from that point onwards that is really their identity within the healthcare mm-hmm. system. Um, and I think as a population, people are moving away from that. They want to be treated as individuals. Um, and it's difficult to do that when you know the medical models aren't moving in that direction. And herbal medicine offers an amazing opportunity for that to happen. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more, and I feel the same way about herbal medicine, but particularly about nutrition, as you know, and it's the same problem, nutritionists, the title isn't regulated either, it leads to an absolute storm on social media and in the media in general around misinformation, because like you say, you can do a diploma or you can do a huge master's, and the lack of regulation is, you know, really kind of frustrating for I think people like myself and you in this field who really want it to be you know a mainstream option for patients to have and for it to empower them with um, this extra bit of knowledge to manage or prevent their chronic health conditions but it's an issue because when you have all these kind of different um, you know narratives around what is actually the kind of evidence basis then people kind of give up and you know feel much more um, safe in trusting a drug and going in to that GP and saying I want my prescription so and so has on this drug I feel more comfortable with this I've heard that it works so I don't know we really need to yeah we need to lobby more and try and um, get this as regulated as possible so that people can't actually lose faith in it and say that it's not uh, legit when it completely is it came very close to being regulated actually 10 years ago there was a we they got within a whisker of a oh, yeah. regulation for herbal practice uh, but it was thrown out for a political reason uh, just at the last last day so we could have had it but it didn't work in the end so mm-hmm. an opportunity was lost is it, was there is, what was the political reason was it was all around. Uh, mm-hmm. It was the end of the Labour government, was, and they were they were pushing back against the idea of nanny state and regulating mm-hmm. profession. And it was literally on some technicality like that. There were very substantial proposal that was put forward. Mm-hmm. All the consultations, everything was done. It was even announced to Parliament that it was going to happen. Right. And then last minute, it didn't. so 
that was when the university courses, because they were set up in, in anticipation, really, of mm-hmm. a statutory-regulated profession, and that's when the, the bottom fell out of their business model. And so, with new government and obviously having a Conservative government ignoring the COVID situation we're in, do you think there would be any kind of ground for kind of re... Well, there's, that, no, there's no doubt that there's no doubt that whatever happens, it'll be different sure. after COVID. So why don't we wait and see? I mean, yeah. None of us can predict, can we? <laughs> there's so much uncertainty. We can't really, yeah, go in with big political campaigns at the moment. So, um, on to the star of the show, Pooker. Um, I really want to know, uh, you've told us how you both got involved. Well, Simon, I'm not as clear as I am with you, and it sounded like it just kind of fell into your, fell into your life, Pooker. I'm not really sure how it happened. So if you could just tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, no, I'm not sure how it happened. <laughs> well, then there uh, we go. <laughs> one of the co-founders is Sebastian Pohl, who I've yeah. known of and worked with and, uh, up, up in, intermittently over, over some years. Um, and uh, it was literally a, a conversation, um, right. and one thing led to another. Um, and uh, I think he was, in fact, you know, this is where Ewan came in, you know, he was looking to expand the team and to step back, because he used to run everything pretty much directly at Pucker. So it was, it was all about expanding and bringing in new people, and I think I was one of those people who came in. Uh, and Simon and I started within days of each other at Pucker. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. I remember meeting Simon for the first time, and I was like, oh my goodness, he's a god. Because <laughs> Simon, of course, is... As he was saying, there were five people at the time when he started out, and he is one of the the sort of grandfathers of the whole thing. You know, started off the yeah, whole careful, thing. you and careful. I, I'm not referring. I'm referring that to it purely as a term of respect. But you know, <laughs> I, have a, I have a grandfather many times over, as it happens, but I try to hide it. I, I dress. I dress in a modish fashion now. <laughs> <laughs> disguise the fact that I'm ancient and decrepit. I learned from Simon's books, and yeah. I remember thinking, "Oh my goodness, I'm meeting the name and have medicine." And it's amazing working with him because Simon is a library of knowledge. Mm. I remember at the College of Medicine's conference in September, uh, Sebastian saying the exact same thing. He brought your book on stage and said that it was all because of you. <laughs> And yeah, your fountain of knowledge. Yeah, well, no, no, we, 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 we gave him a good backhander for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Too humble. So how? So we know how you got to Pooker. How was Pooker actually created by the co-founders? So I've met Sebastian, but I'm not sure who the others are that founded the organisation. I think you should take that one because he's more closely involved in the day-to-day affairs of Pucker. So you and over to you. <laughs> so Pucker was founded about 18 or 19 years ago mm-hmm. and there are two co-founders there's Sebastian Pohl and there's Tim Westwell and they came together through an advertisement that was put on the paper by Tim saying he was looking for, with, for somebody who would start an ethical business with it so the grassroots of the company were that they wanted to create a company that was good for the world essentially and that's been at the very core of everything that's been done since the beginning Mm -hmm. and it has a purpose which is to nurture healthier and happier lives through powerful organic plants that's that's what it's all about um but 
we only do that in a way which has a benevolent impact on every single person we touch. And that's from the person who grows the herb in the field to the person who washes it in a small facility in India or wherever it may be, through to the person who drives it across to wherever it gets to a factory, the person who looks after it there, and the at the end of the day, the person who takes it. Mm. And it's to show that outside of the fact that health and well-being is incredibly important and our understanding of health and well-being is expanding every day, that business is what drives the world. And in order for us to make a real change in how this world operates, businesses need to be forces for good. And that's what we're all about. So, you know, everything from the string that's on our teabag paper is organic because Mm. we want to make sure that down to the smallest little detail, we've done the best we can. Ethical through and through. I find that so inspiring, especially as we're starting out um, and only, you know, in the last couple of years have been registered as a community interest company. It's so incredible to see how, you know, this grassroots approach really does work. Um, yeah, super inspiring. So is Puka, is it a B Corp? In it is indeed. Amazing. Wow. Learned that little gem on a, on a little <laughs> tutorial I did once upon a time. We actually um, leave the B Corps for uh, yeah. England or the UK. So, yeah. Amazing. You take a position of responsibility there. Yeah, no. Um, and so, Sebastian and Tim, um, what inspired them to actually name it Pucker? What does Pucker mean? So, Pucker. So, Sebastian is a, uh, a traditional medicine chap. But he has spanned across a few different uh, disciplines. So he does traditional Chinese medicine, uh, and he also does Ayurvedic medicine, mm-hmm. the Indian form of uh, herbal medicine, and it's basically the science of life. And that goes back millennia. And he speaks uh, Hindi, I believe. Um, and puka is a word that means authentic or genuine um, and tasty as well. So it encapsulated a lot of what they wanted to embody in the company. So mm-hmm. that's how they landed. On that, uh, that's amazing. Name. And are they both? Are they both Brits? Yes. Wow. So interesting that they're yeah both Brits, but have come to Ayurveda and all these traditional, um, yeah, cultural kind of methods of medicine, and have created something almost for the Western world to make it more accessible. This type of medicine. Yeah, mm. and actually. Simon will talk better on this than me, I'm sure, but the history of herbal medicine is about cross-pollination as well. So mm. you know, as soon as we opened up trade routes to the Far East and uh, all of the exotic spices and uh, knowledge that existed over there, we had coming back to us all of this rich wonder of medicine and all of the, what the plants could do. And you must remember that herbal medicine and orthodox medicine were pretty much one and the same thing for a lot of their lives. It isn't until you get to the beginning of the 1900s in national insurance that you really see them sort of rip apart. Mm-hmm. And now you see parts of them come back together again. But yeah, it's all about cross-pollination. So I think it's a fairly natural thing for a, a herbal medicine practitioner to borrow from one culture sure. and uh, add it to another to make something they feel uh, works best. Absolutely, and then adapt it to the patient sat in front of them, uh, which is what it's all about, giving that personalised touch. So, yeah, really amazing. Um, so, back to Simon. 
it'd be really great for you to tell our listeners a little bit about your work with social prescription. I know you work uh, really closely with Dr. Michael Dixon, who's the chair of the College of Medicine and a true hero and mentor of mine. So could you just start off by telling our listeners what exactly social prescription is and how you came to hear about it and become involved? Uh, well, I, I, there is a definition of social prescription out there, and I'm trying to remember it. But essentially, uh, the way I understand it is that it's a shifting of balance or shifting of agenda or control from the doctor putting out a prescription to something that is shared with uh, on a wider community level. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Michael uh, Dixon uh, and I were sort of feeling our way towards this. He, he works just up the road from me in Exeter uh, and has a practice there. And I've known him um, for, what, 30 years, I guess now. Um, and, uh, it, well, I can tell you the story. It, it started um, uh, 12 years ago now. I had a, a phone call from Michael. He's, he comes up with these ideas and he says, I think I've got half a million for a project on self-care. Um, what are you doing? Uh, in the next few years, and uh, so that that was, uh, and I, I thought that was one of his silly ideas, uh, and I put together a proposal. This is an interesting story in itself. Over a weekend, and I knew that um, he answered his emails because he's a very busy boy. He answered his emails on on the Sunday evening. So I thought if I get, uh, oh, he said he needed a project, he needed a proposal by Tuesday. So mm-hmm. I thought, you know, I get something over the weekend in his desk on his desk for Sunday evening and thought that we would then have Monday to shape it up. And uh, the next thing I heard was uh, uh, 10 o'clock on Sunday evening, thanks Simon, I've sent it off to the Department of Health (laughs) with any trace of a change. And so my handwritten notes turned up on the Department of Health and then nothing happened for six months, I thought. That's the end of that. Um, and then at the uh, then another email from Michael in con- in um, confidence with a briefing document from the Department of Health for a new self care project um, that would be national with four centres, uh, one of which would be Michael's practice. Uh, and I read this and I thought, oh my heavens, that's my scribblings on the weekend. And the civil servant had just put a top and a tail on it. And essentially that became the self-care project. And it was the idea was that we would look at ways in which uh, the average GP practice could bring the community into, uh, into the conversation much more. And Michael's new practice was more or less designed, as he called it, like a fishing net. Uh, so that there was, a, uh, there was a big glass space at the front. And then there was uh, PCT, as it used to be called, content in the in the middle, and then the doctors and stuff were at the back. And the idea was that patients were filtered. There was a pharmacy as well in, in the front. And so, and then we were inspired enormously by the Bromley by Bow Centre in, in Tower Hamlets, which, if anyone who wants to understand social prescribing, must go and visit. Uh, it, it's a pilgrimage. Uh, it, the, the work there is, is extraordinary. So. Uh, my uh, stepdaughter and I, uh, who became the research team, uh, went and visited Bromley by boat and said, we've got to translate that into a, into a GP factory. Uh, and that's where it started. And uh, the social prescribing thing actually emerged out of that because what we've discovered was that you needed somebody to uh, be the bridge between the GP and the, and the community. 
and there was that somebody who was a lovely lady called Ruth who knew everybody in Michael's uh, town, uh, been there all her life, and she was the one who made it happen. And everyone realised that you needed a a link person, as we now call them, link workers, uh, to co connect between the healthcare professionals and the community. And so out of her, I mean, we, we took over the, that glass-fronted thing to call it a cafe, and um, uh, it became the hub and sometimes was called the intelligent waiting room because instead of going into the waiting room waiting for your name to come up, people mm. would stop it for a cup of something. And then they would start forming knitting groups and gardening groups, and we had a garden and a herb garden, in fact, out the front. And, uh, suddenly, doctors were reporting that their patients were interactingly different with them but even the gardeners question type panel sessions you know where doctors and complementary practitioners would take questions on fatigue or sleep mm. or whatever and they were really exciting and generated a lot of interaction so social prescribing so to me is that phenomenon of a new relationship mm. with the community you need a link person to make the difference gps as you know far too busy mm. to get involved in whether the yoga classes down mm. the road so you need somebody to act as that connection but why is the herbalist uh, the obvious thing is, is that i wanted to find a way in um and you can't you know doctors are too busy to to teach about herbs but patients keep teaching about herbs all the time because they're using them so it seemed like an obvious opportunity to bring the community interest in herbs right in through the front door of a GP um, and to present the primary care team with this phenomenon and say, right, sorted. Wow. That is, I've never heard the story of how a social prescription was born in the well, that, UK. Well, no, there will be other people yeah. say they started it, so don't take it too seriously. But that, I no, mean, I, I if you're associated with Michael, Michael trust me, I believe that narrative. <laughs> Um, so is is Marie your stepdaughter? No, no, oh. Joey. Oh, okay, uh, I've Joey. not met her. I've met Marie Polly a couple of times. No, no, Marie Polly, no, she's not my stepdaughter. No, what a formidable thought. Um, <laughs> that was the only research person that I thought of. <laughs> no, no, Joey was, uh, Joey was, uh, actually, she came, she ran the cafe, but she was also a researcher. That's so fascinating. And then in terms of other Western countries, um, did you kind of, when you were, you know, scribbling away and sending in that proposal, were you drawing on anything you'd seen in terms of the community outreach from travels or just all de novo from scratch? <laughs> it was literally making it up on a weekend. Wow. And so it is. <laughs> it's incredible. Now, I've seen bits and bobs in Canada and... Places yes, like uh, that, and they did describing it as, as, as a group, mm. then you realise that other people were thinking sure. of parallel. Um, so, yeah, we had this wonderful social prescribing conference 18 months ago now, um, uh, where many of the international uh, participants, mm. yes, or Canada and various sure. other parts of the world, all coming in. Australia is pretty big on it now. Um, mm. And then we're going on the US. Yeah, I mean, anywhere should be big on it now because at the end of the day, uh, we're living for longer. Social isolation is a much bigger problem. It's a very, you know, intense, um, intensely severe risk factor for so many chronic conditions and morbidity, of course. And so we've got to stop reacting and actually think how we can, you know, put people on the right trajectory to be able to manage 
their loneliness, their chronic conditions on, you know, on their own, but with the help of peer-to-peer -peer support, which is why I absolutely love social prescription. The people, I remember I was involved in a cooking class in Bristol, um, the name of the practice will come to me, and it was just incredible to see, like, these elderly women, they'd never met each other before, some had just recently been, um, you know, bereaved, uh, with losing a spouse and they were just getting together and talking about you know what they've been cooking how much better the, the how much better is cooking from scratch than making a ready meal why have they never done it before and it was just and then you learn so much through things like food and other activities about people's backgrounds without having to ask them directly so I think it's so it's yeah. so much better when it's happening inside a primary care center mm. because then the the GPs and partners can join in and you know they, they would get they would come away from a meeting you know that could be one of the questions answered team and they would they'd be making notes mm -hmm. because the patients would be telling them things that they hadn't thought of or didn't know uh, so there was a real sense of fertility and you're mm -hmm. quite right about what it means to people who often have an isolated life mm -hmm. you know I mean there would be you know I remember someone called Francis who didn't turn up uh, at one of the, uh, I think it was the knitting groups, and she was totally al alone, uh, but she'd been brought in by Ruth to, uh, to to join the group, and she didn't turn up, and immediately there was a search party out for yeah. her, you know, and, and she was actually found and, and, and mm -hmm. rescued from a situation, which would not have happened if she hadn't been engaged in that. Mm -hmm. So, you, know, you, you you see this wonderful win-win-win situation that comes off, and you think, why haven't we thought of that before? It seems so obvious. I know that's. I think it's the same with so much in you know lifestyle medicine, integrative medicine, holistic healthcare, whatever you want to call it. It's all common sense. Why have we not thought about it before? And it's because you know we tend to like medicalize and pathologize things. And at the end of the day, for you know human survival and longevity, you need. Uh, emotional connectedness, social connectedness, and of course your physical health, but those two are completely bi-directional, so it's absolutely crucial we're doing it at a time like this, um, and yeah, it's making such a huge difference. So um, where are the hotspots in the UK for social prescription at the moment? So you've obviously mentioned the South West, you've got Michael and you spearheading it in um, Exeter. Where yeah, the Southwest is, is pretty hot on it. Cornwall's very hot, but I mean, sure. I still say Bromley by Bow. I mean, if Bow. you want to go to one place, uh, and there's a lovely, uh, if you're further north, Burnley. Yes, um, Dr. James Fleming's the yeah the edible Bridges, explorers. Yeah, Love them. yeah. Um, and there's a great centre of Brighton. Uh -huh. the, all you need to go is the social prescribing network, and mm -hmm. one of the things from the very first conference that really blew us all away. Was we had about three, two or three hundred people turn up at Westminster for that, and they were all NHS people, mm. and it was almost as though they, 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 they just walked into this, and we suddenly realised that this is a huge buy-in from the front line of the NHS, um, and this wonderful uh, precedent. So go onto the social prescribing network, mm. find it, you'll see wonderful anywhere, wherever you are in the country, you'll find that there's a local. Sure. Uh, innovation and the thing to do is you can go and just join up and just make yourself known uh, because they're always hungry for new people to come in and, and mm -hmm. join in whether you're a, uh, a member of the public or whether you're a health professional or a student or whatever uh, so it's such an enriching experience to find your local hub 
Absolutely, and it just really gives you that sense of purpose and you know being able to acquire a new skill that you never even thought of. And no, it's truly tremendous. Um, yeah, and at Bristol, because you know deep in the southwest, um, we've learned so much about it just because all the clinicians that teach us in primary care are involved in it. So we've been able to witness it firsthand, and yeah, I, I, it's, it's so crucial for all medical students to be able to do that. Um, and so in terms of funding, time, resources, it's obviously quite an emerging um, initiative, social prescription. What do you guys need to kind of get the message out and to get more impact going? Like, you know, blue sky thinking, what do you guys actually need to progress it even further? Well, we already got it. I mean, we had a promise which has been delivered of a thousand new link workers by yeah. the summer. Um, um, COVID rather. Uh, throwing that a little bit into um, into the shadows, but uh, no, I mean the, the NHS, the Department of Health, both get it, yeah, uh, because they can see this as a way of reducing costs. Mm. Uh, so in a way, it was like pushing on an open door. Mm. Uh, not very often that happens. And now, as, as we've all agreed, COVID's going to change everything. But I wouldn't be surprised if that reinforces the social. Yeah, response. I'm sure. I'm sure. And, yeah. yeah. No, I, I don't actually. There's one time where, you know, I lost a shed on the cafe, um, but you know, for, this is one time where, for once, we don't have to keep banging on doors yeah. and us funding here. Yeah, this is the first time I've heard it as well. So, really, yeah, really remarkable. Um, so, back to you, Im. Um, so you work in a GP practice as a medical herbalist in London. So that's quite, I mean, when I first heard that and met you at Hazel's conference, I thought that was completely, yeah, it was revelatory to me. So could you tell us a little bit about what you do in that GP practice and how that role actually came about for you? Um, and are there clones of you around the country? <laughs> or should there be? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I, I don't think there are very many. I don't know of any others who are embedded within a practice to the extent that I am. And the way it came about is, one, I'm lucky because the practice at which I am working is in Marylebone, and it's the Marylebone Health Centre. It was set up by a visionary chap called uh, Dr Petroni, um, who believed in the future of integrated healthcare. And at a time when... PCTs, as Simon was mentioning before, were around. There was um, a bit more funding at that stage for what they would term non-essential services, and those included um, adjunctive healthcare, things like um, osteopathy, acupuncture, herbal medicine, and the like. And this centre was set up to explore how those modalities would work in concert to deliver better patient outcomes. Um, but a lot of that's fallen away now because the funding has fallen away from that. Um, and the herbal medicine practice is the only one that's still existing there. And the way I ended up falling into it was because I was just lecturing at a number of the uh, universities around London. And um, I came in to speak with some of the GPs about something related there. Um, and I spoke to them about herbal medicine. They were saying they see so many patients coming through who are taking herbal medicines alongside alongside orthodox medicines, but they cannot give any advice in this regard, either that patients should take them or, you know, worry about the interactions with the medications that they're prescribing. And I came into one of the clinical meetings, which takes place every Friday lunchtime, and I 
put forward a case for me joining the practice, which was really that I'll take all of your heart, heart sick patients. <laughs> um, and uh, they were like, okay, that sounds like a deal. Let's try it for three months and see how it works. And I think generally medics are a little more wary of herbal medicine than they might may be about any other healthcare modality because herbal medicines do herbal medicines are medicines mm. and you're giving somebody an intervention which may interact with other medicines it can have a profound physiological effect so the safety issues are probably more of a consideration for clinicians than uh, would be for anything else like osteopathy etc um but i start this was almost 10 years ago now that i went in and had a chat started out doing uh, a couple of clinic days each week um, and it was valued very much by the patients. So patients were able to uh, self-refer. So just in the same way as they'd phone up and say, I'd like to see one of the doctors because I have a sore throat, they could do exactly the same with my service. Or they'd re be referred by the GPs or the nursing team or from secondary care mm. to come in as well. And it just became very popular because I think the choice aspect I was mentioning before about mm. healthcare really resonates with patients. Um, and also a lot of new parents like their children to take things that are more akin to food maybe than they are to a pharmaceutical medicine. And sometimes that's all that's needed. And to be perfectly honest, there are some health conditions that respond better to herbal medicine than they maybe do to orthodox medicine. Um, and that's how the practice built and how it works within the general practice now is that... Um, I only work there on Fridays now because I have puckers to keep me busy. Um, but uh, I will see patients for any condition that may come in to a GP's practice. I see patients who are going through chemotherapy. I see patients who have uh, a cough or a cold, patients who have chronic fatigue, um, menstrual irregularities. You know, it could be anything. Fibromyalgia? Yeah. Because every GP placement I've been on, that's what every GP says that they're heart sick patients, and yeah, yeah my heart goes out to them. Mm. That can be a referral, <laughs> <laughs> and, and has been on numerous occasions. Yeah. Um, but I will spend a bit longer with my patients, so whereas the average mm. GP appointment may be seven, eight, nine minutes or so, mine would run to 45 minutes for a new patient, and at which point, as Simon was mentioning again, um, I would take a far more full case history of my patient. I sit down, I start off the presenting complaint, but then go through all of their systems, go through their social history, go through their family history, work out what's happening at home, how they relate to their job and their mm. family and other relationships, what they're eating. And I put that all together into a more holistic view of that patient. And I keep that patient as Louise all the way through. She doesn't turn into a pathology at any stage. And I treat her um, and I try not to aim directly at a pathology sometimes you do because that can be a way through but always thinking about how you get a quality of life outcome mm -hmm. for that patient mm -hmm. and not having to brand them with anything like you said in terms of you know these chronic conditions you get you are um a diabetic uh, when we know now that we can manage and reverse diabetes so you're completely right it can just be a personified louise <laughs> Exactly. And the other lovely thing you can give to patients, apart from giving them um, plants and spending some time with them, and it is to invest them in their own health a little bit. So it's exactly that idea of social prescription and self-care. You're talking about empowering your patients to 
understand themselves and their bodies and how they relate to their health condition and how they can impact on improving their health care rather than relying on somebody else to do exactly that. And particularly if you look at something you were mentioning, diabetes, mm. that is something that can be so managed by the patient, especially in the pre-diabetic stages, um, rather than saying, you know, we'll give you metformin and uh, the patient mm. goes, okay, I'll keep eating bad food then. <laughs> So really interesting that you had, um, I forget what you said, doctor who started the Marlebone practice? Petroni. Petroni, championing you, and he obviously had a belief in this modality of treatment. So how do you deal with the sceptics? And for instance, you know, when uh, a GP in your practice refers a patient onto you and they kind of think, oh, that's not for me, I've heard you know, differing things in the media or just over the years about herbalism and, you know, those quacks and, you know, all the kind of awful criticism that integrative medicine sometimes brings. But how do you deal with the sceptics? It's a really interesting question. I've been asked it a few times. It, just to put it into context, when I started at the practice, I'm thinking there were probably about nine GPs working there. Mm. There were two or three GPs who were very pro the idea of there being herbal medicine there. There were GPs that were not so pro there being a herbal medicine there. Um, and I start from a position of understanding where they're coming from um, because I work with evidence, I work with research, and I know some of the shortcomings that sit with herbal medicine if you look at it from a certain standpoint. But it was interesting that after about a year of working there, some of the GPs who were not so interested were asking me questions about friends who were going through menopause and, you know, mm. what, what could they do to help them? Um, and family members as well. So I think familiarity in the in some instances can breed contempt when we think of a wider thing. But actually in the, in the sense of herbal medicine, I think it quite often breeds respect. Um, so I work on that, that if I can help people to understand what herbal medicine is about mm -hmm. and help them to look beyond it being just a pure replacement of one medicine for mm -hmm. another and therefore a contest of whose is better mm. into the wider sense of what you're trying to do for your patient and the common goals that you have. I think it most mm. often results in a positive outcome and I don't have that much pushback against me. Mm. Um, that's amazing to hear. Do you have any um, case studies of patients um, who, it, they can be either sceptical of coming to you in the first place and you've kind of turned their health and well-being around, or someone who was already engaged that you can just share with our listeners to really show the power of herbal medicine? Um, or even both, both kind of narratives. <laughs> let me think. So uh, maybe something that has quite demonstrable outcome which is quite easy because a bit like uh, most general practitioners my bread and butter will be people with anxiety disorders and sleep issues and then quite a lot of gynecological stuff so the gynecological stuff I will uh, so this is about three years ago there's mm -hmm. a let's call her a Mrs Smith who comes in to see me she has um, had menorrhagia for about five or six years she has uh, submucosal fibroids, I think. Um, this is from memory, thinking back to the case. One sec, I'm just going to tell our audience who aren't medical, menorrhagia, painful periods, and, yeah, submucosal fibroids. We just explain. I I actually got my obstetrics placement at Taunton interrupted due to COVID, so I'm excused. <laughs> I don't have to explain it right now. 
So submucosal fibroids are the ones that grow into the uterine cavity, mm-hmm. and they quite often cause quite a lot of bleeding. They're estrogen-dependent growths, really, but non-cancerous that happen within the uh, uterine tissue. So the this patient had been around the houses and had menorrhagia, so she was bleeding a lot. Mm-hmm. And you know, an average menstrual bleed may be about, say, 50 millilitres, I'd say, something like that. She was bleeding 10 times that. She was bleeding a pint of blood with each one of her cycles to the point where she was quite profoundly anemic and she was having dizzy spells. Mm -hmm. Her uh, ability to enjoy life and carry out her day-to-day job was impacted. She'd take time off work each month. Um, and she was physically exhausted and also incredibly worried about her condition because she was still fairly young and she could see that, you know, this is going to continue growing because I'm continuing to produce estrogen until I reach a menopause, which could have been 10 or 15 years away. So she was referred through to me because I'd put on my notice that was in the waiting room and in the uh, doctor's room saying, I can help with gynecological stuff. <laughs> so this one landed on me. Um, and within three months of treating her, and this was looking at her diet and her lifestyle, but also treating her in quite a interventionist way with herbs. Within three months, her bleeding pattern had reduced. Um, the duration of the bleed was had gone from 10 days to four and a half days. Mm. And from 500 milliliters, she'd gone down to producing 150, which is still a very heavy period. Mm. But the difference was absolutely extraordinary. And it's not just the difference in the bleed, but the difference in her quality of life, because it alleviated a number of other knock-on symptoms. So Mm. that's one example of where Mm. a herbal medicine intervention works incredibly well, because you can so gently nudge and touch things into the right direction, working on lots of different areas to help a patient just almost balance a little bit better. And what was it that you prescribed? I mean, I, as far as herbal medicine, I only really know in terms of hormonal uh, health, it's ashwagandha. Um, yep. What kind of things did you prescribe her? Was it a cocktail? Was any of that put in there? It was a mixture of different things. It mm. wasn't ashwagandha. Okay. Um, but probably one of the lead herbs in there was a, a well-known herbal medicine, medicine called Vitex Agnus Castus, mm-hmm. um, which has a very interesting history because... It used to be grown in monasteries, uh, same-sex male monasteries yeah. in the days of yore, uh, because it reduces sex drives in men, so it stopped them from getting jiggy with each other when they were all locked away in their dormitories at night. Get that in the and prisons! Yes, it it's called Chaseberry. That was its common name because of that, because it yeah. reduced sexual appetite. Um, but when you give it to a woman, uh, it has an indirectly progesterogenic yeah. effect. Um, and you'll probably know that in treatment of fibroids, one of the ways that you can do that is to uh, use progesterone-based medications. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that was probably one of the lead herbs in there. But also you use almost styptics, which are uh, herbs that stop bleeding, mm-hmm. um, which work very well uh, for uh, uterine bleeding. And um, I'm trying to remember what else was in there. Um, it was a mixture of yeah. sort of, and we quite often do this, we mix the art and the science. So there's a lot of collected traditional wisdom about what you've been, what you would use, and it's been used for hundreds of thousands of years, and you kind of follow those guidelines. But underpinning that is a lot of scientific research. So you tend to 
mix a, a bit of science with a bit of art when you're practicing and then the understanding you're getting from the patient. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the art, this is exactly what I wanted to ask you about um, when practicing herbal medicine. So how much does the human therapeutic touch come into it and actually having a longer consultation with a healthcare professional factor into the kind of prognosis and um, effectiveness of the treatment? And have you found that something like COVID, where things are far more remote, you're virtual, you're not able to have that human touch and kind of empathetic understanding has maybe somewhat changed how you practice and, you know, will kind of factor into all these kind of art-based scientific treatments? Mm. It's a really good question. Um, with regard to the first part of the question, um, to what degree does it help that you, or does it impact your relationship with the patient and the therapeutic outcomes by spending more time? Absolutely does. Mm, mm. Um, and I think from a number of different points of view, one is the ability to build a profound therapeutic relationship with a patient, where you not only understand them, but understand their family and, you know, how everything works in their life, allows a, a patient to trust you and to trust in the treatment and also to you know, tell you a lot more about themselves, things that a patient will not reveal um, until they're 30 minutes into talking to you and they suddenly feel comfortable to let something slip that you go, oh my goodness, actually, that might be the key here, mm -hmm. is working out that, not working out the presenting complaint. Um, so it makes a huge difference. And I have to say, if placebo works into that, then I am very, very happy to mm. use placebos with as much grace as it gives me. Um, I think we all rely on it. Uh, so it does make a it does make a really, really big difference um, for some patients more than other patients, and certainly for older and more isolated patients. The ability to come in and talk to somebody is part of the medicine. Mm, you know, the, the ability to share problems and worries and to have somebody listen to them in a non-judgmental capacity is, is, a, is an honour for us, I think. Um, and how has COVID impacted it? Um, well, just in general, you know, having, like, Skyping patients who are abroad, you know, how does it work with this kind of really close therapeutic relationship you build? You can still do it to a degree, mm. but I absolutely... I absolutely agree. It's not ideal. It, it's not the way I would like to run my practice ongoing because you get a huge amount of clinical clues from shaking somebody's hand, watching them walk into the room, how they sit down, by listening to their chest or something. But actually, you're not just listening to your chest. You're looking at their skin and you're looking at the way they're breathing. You're looking at the way they react to you touching them you know all of those kind of things are really important clinical clues and I think the more experienced you become as a clinician the more you rely on that than what the patient's actually telling you so I think you miss the whole body of information but sure. you can still give a lot of comfort and you can also empower patients to look after themselves you can educate by virtual means yeah. um, and patients still avail of this facility so they still find or must be finding though is some value in doing it absolutely and you know the evidence does speak for itself for sure and speaking of which you did mention um i'm going to stop picking your brains in a second but you did mention that some uh, herbal medicines actually work more profoundly than pharmaceuticals could you just give us one condition where this is the case 
Oh, I think a very good condition and a very, very uh, prevalent condition as well. Something like irritable bowel syndrome, mm-hmm. you know, a functional disorder, no known pathology, but patients present with varying symptoms, varying severity, but they do profoundly impact on patients to the point where patients will not leave the house. They won't engage socially or at work, etc. So it is something where you can really help outcomes with patients if you can address it. The medicines, the treatments, interventions that are available on orthodox medicine are not that great. And some of them are actually herbal medicines like colpamine, like peppermint, aren't they? Um, But uh, with herbal medicines, because you can introduce into the gastrointestinal tract, into the gut, directly a mixture of different types of herbs that are everything from antispasmodic mm. to carminative, which is reducing the production of sort of gas and air in the, in the uh, gastrointestinal tract, um, to mildly anaesthetic, um, you know, to working on the gut microbiome, you can have the most amazing effects and probably most of my most amazing effects I've had with patients. Yeah. I'm not just saying there's any kind of uh, amazing outcomes in all of my treatments, but um, some of the most profound effects I've had with patients have been treating things like uh, gut disorders, like IBS. Mm. Also, uh, inflammatory bowel disorders as well can respond very, very well to the topical applications for GIT of, uh, of uh, anti-inflammatories and other kinds of herbs. Wow. No wonder you want to study further in gut health. Yes. (laughs) I guess you're right in the sense there is a lot of functional and psychological basis with a lot of gut conditions, hence the gut-brain axis and the gut microbiome and all these wonderful emerging new things within the field of gastrointestinal medicine. So, of course, you want to dig deeper. And exactly. Yeah, no, I, compl- I completely get you there. And so um, back to Simon and you and Stay On. Um, so we mentioned earlier that um, the title of being a herbal practitioner is quite poorly regulated. Now, in terms of the actual herbs and their regulation, I'm quite interested to hear about that. I know that on the talk I watched you in um, with Chelsea Physic Gardens and College of Medicine at the weekend, Simon, that you mentioned or someone else mentioned about THR and looking for that on herbal um, medicine supplements and you know things from the stores so how does it all work yes you're quite right just like practitioners but in the sense more widely that the control of herbal mm. remedies is very limited uh, and they span a spectrum from foods you know like your garlic your ginger on the one hand right through to some fairly strong acting medicines which are, have to be more tightly controlled uh, and you get the regulated regulatory framework that covers that spectrum uh, and it gets very complex and tortuous particularly in Europe where we're very heavily bound by these things um, so to cut an extremely long story short, if you're a member of the public and you want to try a herbal remedy, you could be facing quite a confusing situation, particularly if you go online, when you can just you, you where you think you believe what's said up there, but frankly you shouldn't, uh, because you know it's the easiest thing in the world to say things about your remedy. So uh, there's, there are laws about making claims um, for anything that's not licensed or registered as a medicine. Uh, so from the herbal side, uh, most herbs are not medicines, but there are some that are. 
and Alex was the one who was mentioning the THRs on the weekend. Uh, the, there's a, a way in which, uh, if you're a manufacturer, you can register your herbs as a medicine, but you have to comply with pharmaceutical standards of production, right. which means you're independently assured. And that gives them a THR. And if you're going to a chemist or to a supermarket and look at the herbs, you can see the THR on the packs, and that gives you an independent assurance that the quality is sound. That's one option. The other one is um, to go to a manufacturer you trust right. who has a good value chain uh, to that eyeballs their growers and produces them under control. And that's where Bucker comes in. <coughs> and then you can uh, be fairly comfortable when you buy a supplement where we do, we're not just a tea company, we, we provide supplements as well, uh, that you, the quality has been assured by that hands-on approach so, uh, so you've got two options if you're a member of the public you either go for an independently assured THR or you go to the uh, uh, companies and the manufacturers and suppliers that have a good trustworthy record and who've got a reputation uh, to defend uh, if you go online and just buy something uh, that looks mm. good and is cheap then that's what you're going to get you're going to get stuff that frankly doesn't even uh, reflect what it says on the label. Mm -hmm. and so there are some pitfalls, and you do need some guidance to steer you through it. Yeah. Mm. And it's so crazy to think the only thing I've really heard at medical school in terms of herbal medicine, when you mentioned registering um, a herb as a medicine since John's Wart, just because it has so many interactions that we're always taught about to make sure we ask patients in their drug history whether they're taking it. Yeah. It's, quite, it's quite amusing, you know, when patients go and have their chemo or go to hospital and the doctors say, can you say which herbs uh, you're taking? And I know exactly the only thing they're interested in is whether they're taking Sir John's work because they can't understand they it. They don't know anything else. Yeah. <laughs> so I usually put in a letter saying, trust me, I've written the books. It's a hugely um, mm. difficult area. If you're a a, 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 a physician or a GP particularly and the patient's coming in saying the doctor I'm taking this that or the other you, your eyes are going to glaze over and that's where I think you and I and others mm -hmm. can, can really step up because you know we've been there we've done the science as well mm -hmm. and uh, we can and do produce guides to people on the safe use of herbs and their interactions and, and in most cases lack of interactions mm -hmm. hence your book the safety <laughs> But, you know, it comes down to a very simple truth, actually. Yeah. It's the herbs are the least of your trouble. It's the prescriptions that right. present with the challenge. So if you've got a prescription with a narrow therapeutic window where an overdose and underdose can be difficult and challenging, that's when you need to be careful mm. about what you eat, frankly, um, because anything on a plate can interfere if you've got one of those drugs. If you're on antidepressant, anti-epileptic, you know, on a, high, on a delicate uh, diabetic controlled um, regimen or whatever there are those situations you know where you do need to be careful what you allow your patients to consume and that includes herbs mm -hmm. um, but for the majority of cases the interactions are very low mm -hmm. level
Yeah. No, the regulatory kind of aspect of herbal medicine, it's fascinating. I can see why it's problematic. And I actually became quite interested in it um, last year. I was doing an intercalated BSc away from Bristol at Imperial uh, for the year in um, medical humanities, philosophy, law and creative arts. Bit of a mouthful. Um, quite an exciting BSc. It was only the second year um, that it was being done at Imperial, uh, you know, traditionally very sciencey university. And so it was really incredible, incredible because my first project was actually to go and train as a Chelsea Physic uh, garden tour guide. And um, we kind of was a team building exercise that you were put into groups, and each team had to come up with. Um, a theme and you know you have to wear the outfit according and go be guided round by the Chelsea Physic garden tour guides and really learn about the gardens then go away research it more and create essentially an off by heart tour of the gardens um, that was open to the general public on a particular day and so I was very fascinated in the medical garden um, within Chelsea Physic and then I was walking around and I noticed um, <clears throat> The second word of many plants was officinalis on the end. And so, obviously, having um, learned from the wonderful guide, um, it was to do with regulating it way back when and, you know, putting that suffix on the ends. And it completely yeah, opened my mind to how challenging it must be to kind of prescribe this kind of thing and to be in communications with um, traditional medical um, systems. But... No, it was such an incredible experience. Um, I really loved it. And I remember even learning about, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, there's like a poppy or something that um, is the foundation for breast cancer, like a certain breast cancer drug or something. Um, not sure. You tree, probably, you were thinking of. What is it? You trees. Potentially. Taxon. Not 100 Some sort of poppy, poppies. I kind of remember. Um and breast cancer. I'll have to look it. I'll have to look it up again. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, it was. It was we, amazing. We, we can't be relied upon for any information, you know that. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that a lot. But um, yeah, no. And on that front, in terms of um, educating medical students and other medics around herbal medicine. Um, yeah, not everyone gets to be a Chelsea Physic tour guide. Um, so what, what do you think we can do to improve the situation around, um, you know, just general GP's knowledge around herbal medicine and within medical education? It's tough, isn't it, if you're a GP um, and if you're a medical student, but even tougher, you know, to get anything more into your head. Uh, so we learned long ago not to push too hard on that one. Mm -hmm. uh, but there, there are opportunities. I mean, the College of Medicine uh, does constantly provide foundation mm -hmm. courses, and it's mostly GPs and medical students that turn up. And you can get a really good, you know, weekend or a day or two uh, to orientation to things. And then that, if you've got, if you're peaked, if your interest is peaked, then you can follow that up with your own reading. Uh, there are courses. There are, there's a course called Heartwood, which uh, many of us. Uh, have, mm -hmm. Uh, endorsed, but it, it involves a lot of it, uh, time and commitment, which most of the medical students and doctors won't be able to do. So I think it's a question of put, putting your toes in the water in some of these open-ended uh, open courses. Mm. 
be introduced and then do your reading and mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's good quality material out there if you want to study. Yeah and of course Pucker's Learning Academy we're going to hear all from Joe and Viv around that you guys have got amazing learning resources. And so obviously we've mentioned a little bit that this is quite a stressful time um, with COVID and stress and anxiety kind of going through the roof. Um, Simon, being the College of Medicine self-care lead and um, you know you and being a herbal practitioner that deals with these kind of things in your practice um, in most consultations, what kind of herbs and in particular what pucker teas do you kind of recommend to deal with? Um, stress and anxiety. Not saying you know it's the panacea, but um, what ones do you recommend? I think we'll probably fight over them, you and I. Uh, relax was always the the standby, but I've fallen in love with peace tea. Uh, it's got hemp in it and okay. and uh, it's a lovely tea to drink as well, and very calming. Lovely. Yeah. And I go for love. Well, there you go. Right. Yes. It's a reflection of my personality, of course. Uh, no, I go for love. It's chamomile and lavender and lime flowers. It's full of lavender. It's got all of the florals in it. And I think um, a lot of relaxation and feeling good about yourself is, mm. you know, there's the taste and the therapeutic value of the herbs, but there's also the aroma and the sense of making something that's a moment for yourself, which is quite special. Mm. Who decides on all the names? I love them. <laughs> they kind of squabble around uh, Pucker. So initially it was uh, Seb probably mainly with Tim as well, um, and they would have the deciding vote on the names, I'm sure. But now it's, uh, you know, they kind of evolved quite organically yeah. um, within, the, uh, within the company, I think. And we usually start off with, because we start off with a need state or a, a, a health condition that we want to address, um, the name quite often blossoms out of that. That's so, yeah, it's a lovely progress. I love that. So lovely. Yeah, my favourite has got to be um, your clarity tea, Tulsi. So, quite interesting. Um, That's an acquired taste. It's an acquired taste, and I'll tell you why I love it. I Do you know the organisation Woof? Worldwide organisations on organic farms. Yes. So I woofed or woofed, whatever you want to call it. Um, I've got a lot of family in Texas, quite randomly, and um, I had some time to kill two summers ago in my third year of medical school. And so I went to woof on a farm just outside of Austin in an area called Dripping Springs. And there I discovered my absolute love for herbs and plants. I made loads of tinctures. We made um, an Usnea tincture, um, which was yeah quite antimicrobial. Um, and the lady who I was, the farm I was on, I now call her my farm mom because we're still in touch. But yeah, she was telling me that it really helped her like seven-year-old kid with tonsillitis, Usnea. And it just completely cleared it up. No antibiotics were able to kind of get to it. Um, or if it was kind of strep throat or whatever it was. And then she had a holy basil plant, as she calls it, which is obviously the other word for Tulsi. And she used to make these pots of tea every single day. And honestly, even from first trying it, I didn't find it a strange um, or kind of like bizarre taste. I just loved it. And then it was by pure chance, I just got a pack of your teas and I tried the Tulsi and I realised that it was the exact same taste as holy basil. And yeah, 
my absolute favourite. There you go, you sold it to us. <laughs> I know, I should come and work for you guys. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on and I just wanted to kind of finish on um, one or two fun questions to end off on. So, if you're on a desert island and you have only access to one herb, which would you take? We had to fight on this one, so I'll, <laughs> let, I'll, let, the, I'll let the winner take the first one. <laughs> oh, so I won. Okay, I will go for turmeric. Uh, and my reason behind it is I think one of the beauties of herbal medicine and the whole thing behind it is the fact that people can mix it into their food, it can be part of the diet, it mm. can be part of the lifestyle, and doesn't have to be just a medical approach to making yourself feel better. And turmeric's perfect for that. It has an amazing tradition of use in Indian medicine. It moved over to the West and we adopted it very, very quickly. There's an amazing amount of research behind it. Mm-hmm. It's efficacy. We know it's safety as well. We know how it works within the body. You can use it in the same way as you might use an ibuprofen or, or an aspirin or steroidal anti-inflammatory to reduce inflammation. We know exactly the mechanism is the same. It's a COX, a LOX inhibitor. Mm-hmm. Um, and alongside all of that science goes an amazing taste, a beautiful aroma, the most gorgeous of yellow, deep, golden colours. I mean, what can you not love about it? So if I were to be stuck with that, I think I'd be a happy boy. <laughs> I'd agree with you. You'd be a stay. yellow boy as well. <laughs> the one downfall is that it stains absolutely everything. My kitchen wooden spoon, like I can show you it right now, it's just pure yellow. <laughs> No matter how many times it's been in the dishwasher. But hey, it's fantastic, <laughs> I agree. And you, Simon? Well, as turmeric was so meanly stolen from me, I went for my, actually, the one I actually do really go for, which is cinnamon. Right. And for very much the same sort of reasons, uh, it's, again, very accessible. Um, it, anyone can use it. Uh, it. It tends to be associated nowadays with blood sugar control and that sort of thing. But it's got a far, far richer storyline to it and it's literally a very old story and there's a fabulous story of fables and lots of exotic stories in the background uh, but this is a herb that's warming and there's a whole storyline behind what warming means but essentially it's improving your blood supply and improving your blood circulation responses it works on the gut in the same way that turmeric does and we've already heard that the gut is where a lot of things happen for a herbal practitioner is where we do most of our work uh, so this is a wonderful digestive remedy that's also a circulatory remedy that tastes absolutely amazing. It's, for a spice, it's really quite interesting because it's got a sweet taste to it as well mm. as the warm and, hot and warming space. And in traditional medicine, sweetness was a very powerful force. A lot of our more powerful remedies had a natural sweetness to them, like licorice, for example, mm. that we use quite a lot. Um, so cinnamon has all the qualities that you want in one plant. Um, and it's just gorgeous. Yeah, completely. And where does it come from? It, this, the, the one that w- most of us like most comes from what used to be called Ceylon or Sri Lanka. Right. So it's called uh, Ceylon cinnamon, uh, southern India also. Uh, but you also have a Chinese one called Cassia. And then there are about seven, I think, other uh, species of cinnamon uh, in the, the ones you find if you go to an ordinary spice cabinet in a, in a supermarket often come from indonesia and there's a different species again uh, but if you can get the real things then uh, you'll smell them and the salon uh, the cinnamon has the very tight curls uh, bark and you, mm. and you know it as soon as you smell it 
gorgeous. Wow. And am wow. I right in thinking that cinnamon, I'm trying to remember my history here, but cinnamon was resp- was used by um, a nurse called Mary Seacole. Was it in the Crimean War? And it was the, it was purported to save tens of thousands of lives, or she did, using it to treat dysentery. Yeah. Uh, a gut astringent yeah. and reduced, uh, yeah, maybe dysentery symptoms. And, and it also is a very good uh, remedy for fever management, which of course was also part of what you have to yeah. do, because it, mm. it supports your own natural fever responses, and fever is a defence. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. we think it's the problem, of course, it's the body's attempt to, to rid itself of a problem, and cinnamon is one of the warming remedies that were used uh, to support the fever. Uh, response uh, in fe- in old style fever management, which some of us still think is a great way of managing a health situation. Yeah, to... I was going to say, has that come into play with any COVID situation? Uh, it, it has, but we don't say much. Yeah, um, no. No. Uh, obviously it's a dangerous territory to get into. But I yeah, know. some of the old insights mm. that you imagine come to mind when you hear about what happens mm. in this situation. And final question, as I'm a big foodie and of course started NutriTank due to my love of food and wanting to spread its healing properties, what would be your ideal last supper? So you're, you've got one day left to live, um, your ideal starter, main and dessert. So it doesn't necessarily have to be healthy because you're at the end, but yeah, just go for it. <laughs> oh goodness, this is fatalistic. I know. <laughs> I'll go first because my answer is very simple and it, it, it doesn't even have three courses, it just has one. I'm, on. an, I'm an absolute fetishist for high quality sushi. Fair enough. Mm. Absolutely. That'll do for everything. I remember being at a sushi restaurant in, in America and someone said, do you serve bread? And the whole restaurant fell about in a complete state of disbelief. Oh they were confused. Sushi was any other food at all. It's so simple. So what's your favourite? A nigiri, a sashimi, a maki? Yeah, give, give me them all. All of it. An assortment, a medley. Sure. And you? Oh, I'm right far less healthy than Simon's. I feel terrible now. You shouldn't, you shouldn't. You've got one no, day left to live. Enjoy yourself. You would go for it. Okay, let So, my first course, I have to, it would be, it's not a traditional first course, but it would be freshly baked bread with, that's still warm from the oven, with lovely home-churned butter on it. Wow. Nice, salty, yellow butter. Um, that would be the first part. Uh, the second would be, there is a chef chap called Ottolenghi. My favourite. Just honestly, okay. don't even. Israel's my favourite place. I yes. go to Tel Aviv every summer. <laughs> okay, well, we'll get along like a house on fire. So it, one of his restaurants in London called Rovi, they, they serve something called herb fritters, which are this amazing, almost pancake things that are made out yeah. of loads of pulverised herbs mixed with a little bit of egg and some meal and stuff, oh, and then it has tamarind sauce, and it's one of the most delicious things in the whole world. So that would have to be my main course. Even though What's I think the herb? Is it like a zatar? Or what is it? Do you know? Lots of different herbs. Just loads of different, okay. Loads of different types of herbs. Um, I would, yes, it's, uh, it's worth looking for. Wow. Uh, and then my, my pudding would have to be freshly baked apple pie. Bringing it back to the British roots, I like it. I know. You're converting me already, Ewan. So again, <laughs> again, the sushi. <laughs> <laughs> I 
diabetic condition that follows my meal. <laughs> it's too late. It doesn't matter. You've got one day left. It's yeah. The end's already there. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute amazing session. We've covered absolutely every topic under the sun and hopefully get you back on very soon. Thank you, Ali. Wow, I've got to say that was truly one of my most favourite episodes to record. As you can tell, I'm a bit of a Pucker fangirl and I really hope to pursue a degree in medical herbalism at some stage after I qualify. To find out more about Pucker's work, you can find them on Instagram and Twitter and their website. I'll put this all in the show notes and also follow College of Medicine on Twitter and Instagram and their website too. You can see all about the social prescription work and Simon Mill's work as the self-care lead. Nutritank is an award-winning, innovative information hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine, with a current mission to improve nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within medical training nationwide. Nutritank aims to empower healthcare professionals and members of the public to improve their health and well-being through diet and lifestyle modifications. Visit Nutritank.com for our membership packages, follow us on social media and join our community. Bye for now! Please note that this podcast aims to educate and not to replace healthcare professionals' advice, so please continue to seek help from your nutritionists, your dietitians, and your doctors. Thank you.